Hello, I'm Mark Nixon, and this is Six Photographs. My guest today is the writer Roddy Doyle. Roddy has written lots of books. Every time I tried to count them, those little thumbnails on Google, I got a different number. But I think I'm safe enough to say over 50, since he first published The Commitments in 1987, including the Booker Prize winning Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha. Or as I like to say, Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha. As well as the books, he's written screenplays for the films of The Snapper, The Van, Family, When Brendan Met Trudy, and he co-wrote the screenplay for The Commitments movie. He's also written for the stage and his plays include Brown Bread and Guess Who's Coming for the Dinner. And he wrote the stage adaptation for the musical of The Commitments, which coincidentally starts touring in Ireland and the UK next week. Roddy took the title of this podcast to heart and only sent me six photographs. But those six photographs led to a kaleidoscope of stories and memories about his dad, who, among other things, wore a cape which in my book makes him a real-life superhero, the commitments, including the book, the film and stage musical, winning the Booker Prize and the story of the photo of that book cover, an early job as a copyboy, seagulls and pigeons, his school days both as a pupil and as a teacher known as Punk Doyle, having a pee with theatrical mice and how desperate Dan reminds him of his mother, all told with that trademark sense of humour and a twinkle in the eye. So please enjoy Roddy Doyle and I'll talk to you on the other side. Okay. (laughs) So here is a photograph of a little boy on his communion day, Mm -hmm. I assume, because he's wearing a rosette. He's dressed in white. He's got a long white jumper on that comes down to about his mid-thigh, which looks a little bit big for him. He's wearing white shorts to the knee and then white shoes and knee-length white socks. And he's most gorgeous looking little boy. He's got this beautiful symmetrical face on top, the biggest mop of hair <laughs> I've ever seen. He'd outdo little Richard in, his, would, in yeah. his prime. But it's an old photograph, so it couldn't be you. It looks well before that. And the photo itself has kind of gone silvery, which they tend to do over time if they weren't fixed properly in the first place in the darkroom. So either that or the light, but it looks like a studio portrait by a yeah. professional. And yeah, it's lovely. So who's this? That's my father, <laughs> Rory Doyle. And what I love about, I loved my father. So it's funny to see him that young. Yeah. He was 90 when he died, you know, but if you took away the rosette, the last thing you'd say probably is that's a little Irish kid who grew up in Tala. Yeah. Because that's where he was from. I doubt, you're probably right. It probably is a studio. And I doubt if it was in Tala because Tala was just a village at the time. Yeah. But my father was born in December 1923. So that is probably, what would you think, 1930, 1931? Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's his Holy Communion. If I remember right, Holy Communion crests or, or the rosettes are white. Too young to be making his confirmation there. I wondered, was it something to do with the Eucharistic Congress, the, okay. the big yeah. uh, gathering of... Yeah, because he doesn't actually... He looks more about four or five, maybe, rather than seven or The Eucharistic Congress was 1931 or something oh, like okay. that. I think I'm not altogether sure. But I'm not sure about the rosette, but certainly it, it is the one indication that this may well be an Irish kid. Because the way he's dressed... I'm sure the jumper's too big for him because he was going to get plenty of wear. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking that. Do you know? 
He was the eldest in the family as well, so of a very big family. There were eight, nine children. Right. And he was the eldest, the first to arrive. So it's the mop of hair is staggering, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely staggering. <laughs> I say this as a bald man. It's funny because you... And the fact that it was allowed grow, I yeah. think he probably got an almighty slagging about it. But it looks short at the sides. Yeah. And then it's this booth on the top. Oh, so it's, a, it's a premiership <laughs> footballer-esque. There's a lot of... It wouldn't have been his work, but a lot of work and thought and love and just yeah. bullish determination went yeah. into that. That would have been my grandmother, yeah, a woman who died when I was very young. So I've only a few memories of her, unfortunately. But yeah, that's my dad. Yeah. <laughs> and did he ever lose his hair? Or? Oh, he did eventually. But uh, yeah, I was in my mid thirties when I decided to bite the bullet and just get a skinhead cut because it was all falling out. Yeah, yeah. My father was a good deal older. He lost his hair eventually. He was 90 when he died. So, yeah. you know, wow. he lost it eventually. But he had a, a good head of hair, all right, in a way that I didn't. My brother, Shane, who's a bit younger, a few years younger than me, he had his hair a good deal longer than I did. Right. Yeah. When did you start going? Like, in school I'd say no, like no, in my 30s. In yeah, my early right, 30s, yeah. I began to see there was a scalp where there shouldn't have been. So yeah. rather than do the Bobby Charlton <laughs> comb over thing... <laughs> You don't see those anymore, really. Or they're more discreet, Well, do you know what? I think they're coming back. I've Are seen they? a few recently and they go, oh, no. You should never throw <laughs> the old clothes away because they'll always come back into fashion. So maybe it's the same with hair. Uh, but anyway, no, I just, I got a crew cut, first of all. And then just eventually, I'd say I was about 40. I just started shaving me. Yeah, head, yeah. And uh, doing it myself so every three days or so. So it's just, yeah. it takes less time than it would to shave your chin. No. Yeah, so I didn't inherit my father's. Uh, I inherited his eyesight because he wore glasses very, not blonde. Long after that, he would have started wearing glasses. And I did. I was very young when I started wearing glasses. Yeah. So I inherited that from him. Right. So I inherited his bad eyesight, but not his good hair. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't, he just doesn't look like an Irish child. No, he, he, he looks He was very kind of sallow. Thin or Italian, or if you were told that's a little boy from, a little Jewish lad from Lithuania who yeah. arrived in Dublin with his parents, yeah. you wouldn't say, no, it's not. No. Yeah. Or, yeah, a little Sicilian kid or. Yeah. Yeah, he certainly doesn't. And I don't think it was just the photograph. I was often, when I was a small child, I was often mistaken as what would have been called a foreigner. My Something about my whole, my, my skin texture, whatever, changed as I grew up. But when I was a very small child, like there was, it wasn't uncommon for people to say, what is your name? <laughs> Assuming I didn't speak English as a first where you, language. Where do you come from? <laughs> yeah. No, but where do you come from? <laughs> where do I come from? When the answer was Kilbaric. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, where did you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose there's that whole kind of black Irish thing as well, isn't there, with the Armada and all that, with the Spanish influence? Yeah, is that just mythology in a way? I don't, I don't know. know. I think yeah. it probably is. But my father, it, Doyle, obviously, is an Eastern, uh, East Coast name, and his people came from County Dublin, County Wicklow. There was a Thornton. His grandmother was called Thornton, and he thinks that his great-grandmother, just very immediately after the famine, or that time, that period, probably walked across the country from Galway. But the, you right. know, you'll, we'll never know. Yeah. So whether she had the dark complexion that, that yeah. the Spaniards gave us, I have no idea. <laughs> and of course, there was so much trade from Northern Africa along the Atlantic and to the West Coast. So it's inevitable that you would have got the mixing of people. Yeah. But whether any of it ended up in Tala, I don't know. At that time, it's certainly a mixed, diverse area now, but not when my father was growing up in 19. Yeah. 
in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah. What did your dad do? He got a printing apprenticeship when he was just, I think he wasn't quite 16. When the war broke out, I think it was September 1939. I'm not, I, I think he got an apprenticeship. And so he did his seven years as a, and trained as a compositor. Right. Composing the pages, you know, mm-hmm. and he worked for the independent. So he has just finished his apprenticeship when he met my mother. And the first two children, my sisters, were when he was working night shifts in the independent. Yeah. And then he, I think a day job had its attractions at that stage, you know. So he then started teaching. When I was born, he was teaching printing and design in Bolton Street School of Technology. He was called a vocational teacher. These days, he'd probably be called a lecturer. Yeah, but in yeah. those days, it was a vocational teacher. And then when I was a younger kid, his final day, he went into ANCO when ANCO was formed, helping to coordinate the training of apprentices. So I think as far as I was, like, you're a child, and then you're a teenager. So I, you look at your father from a child's perspective and then you don't look at your father from a teenage perspective. Yeah, yeah. But I think one thing, one of the things he would have been particularly pleased with or excited by in that job in Anko, because Anko itself became a bit of a joke and, you know, it became inevitably everything in Ireland becomes a bit of a joke. <laughs> but, for example, seven year apprentice, apprenticeship, it became a four year apprenticeship. Yeah. That medieval practice just stopped, you know, and they modernised it and made it formally, you know, formal training. Well, seven years sounds like a long time for any kind of apprenticeship, doesn't it? But it was the standard for all apprenticeships, you know, and badly paid right into their 20s. You know, exploited, basically. There was no need for it. So very quickly they modernised the whole apprenticeship scheme throughout the country, you know, and I think he was, it was an exciting time to be in there in the 60s and into the 70s, you know. Yeah. And even I remember he went to some congress or conference of printing in a conference about printing and printing practices in Germany when I was a young kid. And the excitement of that, because he was going abroad for the first time in his life, right. passport. Yeah. And I f- we found a letter that he wrote home to my mother. Right. He was away for a week and he wrote a letter <laughs> home to my mother. It was absolutely <clears throat> hilarious, you know, just reading it. After he died, you know, yeah. reading the letter and the affection in it and the wit, you know, it was yeah. a very funny letter. But I remember years later, he told me that he came home from that conference knowing that the trade of printing, its days were numbered because of all that was happening in, you know, right. the, the modernization of yeah, the whole yeah. practice and the computers just around the corner. Yeah. So by the, he was still a working man when his trade effectively ended, you know, yeah. stopped, yeah. which must have been. He was never nostalgic, but... It can't have been easy to witness, you know. I suppose it's a little bit like a sports person who suddenly reaches a point very early on in their lives that they're finished. And my father didn't feel he was finished. He was by no means like that. But to spend seven years of your life training Mm -hmm. to be something, taking Mm -hmm. great pride, and he was very good at it, I believe. And I've met so many now elderly men who were taught by my father. It's a brilliant experience, invariably. Yeah. When I meet them. But to find out then that the trade that you were skilled in was going to be, could be done by anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody at all. Yeah, it must have been unsettling, to put it mildly. But when yeah. you think, you know, the printing press and the invention of that and literacy and mm. bringing literacy to ordinary people. And then, you know, I read a book recently about the link between the railway and printing and literacy, paperbacks being invented for travel and how. You know, the railway had a huge influence in spreading literacy and literature. 
And again, it must have been fantastically exciting to be a printer in those days, you know, and realizing that not only the elite, but your neighbors were beginning to read the stuff that you printed. It must have been incredible. So my father, you know, obviously he wasn't printing in the mid 18th century, 19th century, but if he started in 1939, his trade wasn't, his apprenticeship wasn't in a newspaper. But he started then, say, working in The Independent in 1946. And you think of some of the headlines he must have composed, mm-hmm. you know, and the peace negotiations going on, the Cold War starting and yeah. all sorts of stuff. The Republic being declared here. He must have composed that headline or he must have been in at work that day when it was done. Yeah. I suppose sometimes if your face is right bang up against the page, you don't realize the significance of what you're doing until yeah, later. Yeah, but, yeah. And there was one of the one of the men who composed the original proclamation, proclamation yeah. Mick Malloy, was still working in the Irish Independent. Right. So my father knew him. Yeah. Wow. You know, you know that thing, six degrees of separation. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew Porrick Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> my father, Mick Malloy, probably James Connolly in Liberty Hall, Porrick Pierce. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, I met a group, I was working with a group of old printers who were writing their, you know, accounts of their lives as printers, you know. Yeah, yeah. When I was in school, 19, it would have been 1975 and 76, I worked the summers in the Irish Times as a copy boy, which would have been a kind of office boy, but the equivalent of email. Somebody gave you a piece of paper and you went to a different part of the building or out onto the street or you went down to the four courts and collected copy from the journalist who was reporting on whatever yeah. trial was on. You brought it back or in August out to the horse show. And then Martin Turner, the cartoonist, he lived in Belfast and he sent his cartoon down on the train and I had to go to Connolly <laughs> to collect it. <laughs> but what was brilliant about that was the like literally the offices on the Lear Street and the printing was done down in the basement. Mm-hmm. And then you had the various departments above it and on various buildings around Westmoreland Street and the Lear Street. But it was literally a hive of activity. And now, you know, you can actually go through a whole career as a journalist without meeting any of your colleagues. Yeah. Which to me seems to defeat the, a big part of the purpose, you know. Yeah. It's like people suggesting, oh, colleges can go online. They're missing the point mm. in many ways, because yeah. in a lot of ways, it's not about formal education. Mm. It's much more complicated and interesting and vital than that. Meeting so people. Meeting connections and bouncing ideas. Off yeah, each other. absolutely. Yeah. And making your mistakes and growing up. You can't do that without other people around you. you know? <laughs> the, the photography department was brilliant. Yeah. Great. Great, they were all men, but great men doing the developing and the photographers coming in, you know, sometimes they'd have been at the races, other times they'd have, um, you know, they'd been covering something and then again, that urgency coming up towards the afternoon and the the evening when the first edition was going to be put together. Where is he? Where is he? He should be back by now. That it was, yeah, it was just brilliant. Some of the more newly arrived journalists would sit there and Maeve Binchy would come in. You know, she was so nice, you know, yeah. so nice. Elgie Gillespie was another person who sat there. And a lot of the women who went on to become, I suppose, household names in a way and mm-hmm. were kind of, and, you know, opened doors for other women, I think, that mm-hmm. generation of women. A lot of them were around at the time as well. It was great to be in that kind of energy, yeah. you know, brilliant. Yeah. And your dad, your parents actually lives quite close to my wife's parents. Two doors down. And my wife said she used to see him there in his plus fours and his... No, he wouldn't have worn plus... He was a very... Deer stalker hat? Would have worn... He had a whole array of hats and he wore this... uh, He had a kind of almost like Sherlock Holmes cape towards the end. Oh, that was it, yeah. 
and he had a walking stick, you know, at, right. uh, by the end, of course, he needed it. But I think it was a, he was kind of, in his younger years, he would have been elegant, I think, in a way that, you know, you don't associate Irish men with elegance. Or yeah. Certainly not. Maybe these days you do. I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, but <laughs> my dad was a kind of, a, you know, he won, even when he was a kid, he won an award as a best apprentice or something like that. Yeah. And with the money, he bought a pipe. <laughs> He took, went yeah. up to Fox's was it, or Captain yeah. Peterson, which is still there. Yeah. Bought a pipe, a plug of some tobacco, I can't remember the name, filled it, you know, vomited <laughs> <laughs> and kept up with the pipe. So there was a whole, there were enough pipes when he died to give each of the grandkids got a pipe. And, right. you know, he had a load of pipes, a load of hats. Yeah. And he was a, a very fussy, a very fussy dresser, you know. Yeah. Uh, but he never, not plus fours, no, nothing no, okay. eccentric. Okay. The most eccentric thing he would have had was that cape. Yeah. But I think when you saw him walking along, as he did the coast road with my mother, you know, in the middle of winter, the Cape made good sense. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not something I would be caught in myself, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he was, yeah, he was, uh, he was always dapper in a way that I'm not. Let's see the next photo you sent me. Now, this is a colour photograph it's taken in Dublin. Recognise the buildings in the back and there's a it's Cable Street Bridge, right? So you can see the water and you can see other bridges in the background. There's a Dublin bus there as well. But the main focus of the photograph, and this is what's amazing about photography, is it can capture something in like 250th of a second, mm. which, you know, if you think about that in terms of speed is amazing. That you could never see with your eye, really. So the main focus is of a pigeon. Do of seagulls. A seagull, sorry, but grey looking. I thought there were maybe pigeons. They're but. very young. They're yeah. they're big, but they're they're very young, which is why they're not the full adult ah, okay. colour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The main one the the head is at the bottom of the frame in the centre. The wing is creating this beautiful S shape and mm. you can see every feather of the edge of the wing and underneath the wing. And then just framed nicely in that, it, there's another seagull just diving down towards the water. It's quite an amazing photograph. So yeah. did you take this yourself? I took it myself, yeah, maybe a year ago, maybe just at the beginning of the year. I'm not sure exactly. Just took it on the phone, you mm. know. It's a thing I do. I take photographs occasionally of seagulls. And basically, I they, those two lads were on the bridge, you know, on the rail of the bridge. And I just kind of slowly walked up to them and they were reacting to me then, you know, they were flying away. Yeah. And it wasn't until they were gone and I was finished and I looked to see what I'd got that I realized I'd got that one. Yeah. Which, oh, great. Yeah. So what I do is there's a small face group called the Seagull Appreciation Society <laughs> and I put up the occasional photograph on that. Just, right. I've read a bit about seagulls and I'm really interested, not so much in the gulls themselves, although I do like them. I'm interested in society's reaction to them. There are so many animals that people call it, you know, pigeons, ah, rats with wings, yeah, seagulls, yeah. rats with wings, squirrels, uh, grey squirrels, rats. Yeah, yeah. They dismiss, and I think sometimes the seagulls and the pigeons, it's kind of as if people would, they have the opportunity to, deride them and to hate them 
in a way that they probably wouldn't feel comfortable saying about a group of people, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, that the way they talk, even I was taking a photograph of a, a four seagulls sitting in a row in Hope, and I was just on my hunkers taking it. It didn't, it wasn't a great photograph. It didn't work out at all. But there was a woman sitting on a bench nearby and she said, you're only encouraging them, <laughs> which was very funny. <laughs> Particularly as she didn't see it as funny at all. Mm. And so I, I wonder sometimes about people's reactions to seagulls. Mm. Um, but I read a book about them called Landfill. Uh, it was brilliant because, you know, in the 19th century, we wouldn't have seen the seagulls. They were out at sea. Mm. They were doing what the name suggests. Yeah. <laughs> the hint is in sea. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's no, there's not enough food for them out there anymore. And then, of course... I grew up in Kilbarrick on the north side of Dublin, and I remember when the Causeway Road and the Alfie Byrne Road were being built. Yeah. The, the rubbish, the city's rubbish was dumped there for a long time. It was part of the ballast for the roads themselves. Thousands of seagulls in the air, you know, but part of the, if you like, the seagulls' role was to, you know, sort out the rubbish in some ways, you know. Yeah. And then the same in Essex, where London's rubbish used to be dumped. And there were people studying the patterns, they, 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 the way the seagulls reacted. They'd turn up in the late afternoon just as the dump trucks were arriving from London. They never turned up on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, never. There wasn't even a scout to see. They There's just didn't right? turn up on Sundays. Bank holidays killed them all together because they did turn up on bank holidays. But it's easy to like, you know, have robins in the back garden. They're sweet. They're yeah. But there's a big old pigeon comes to the back door as well, say in the summer months when the back door is mm. open. Mm. And it, the temptation to go, shoot, go. But why would you, you know, they're actually as interesting to look at in any in many ways. And the seagulls, I just find them. And now they're nesting on roofs. Mm. You know, they're adapting even as we look. Yeah. And they're, a lot of them live right into their 30s. Right. Yeah, you know, I think the connection between us and the animals, we're not comfortable with it very often, I think, mm. you know, but we are basically animals, you know. We're impressive, I think, as animals go, but they all are impressive. So, and I know the, the seagulls have a bad rep, as if they deliberately rob, you know. Well, they do. Yeah, <laughs> Dickensian, they do it yeah. because they have to. Yeah. Dave, who works for me, lives out in Hoth, you know, and he mm -hmm. look out the window and they're coming out of the chippers, some girl <laughs> with her chips, and they dive bomber mm -hmm. until she throws the bag of chips up yeah. in the air and then they have the meal. Yeah, yeah. But I read, there was, again, some newspaper, somebody who moved to Hoth complaining about the seagulls. <laughs> the seagulls have more right to complain about you. It's there. It's a fishing village, you yeah. know, so you don't go to a fishing village and then whinge about the seagulls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I like the noise they make as well, you know. It's often the thing that wakes me for early in the morning, seagull on the roof, you yeah. know. Reminds me that I live by the sea and always have. And yeah. it's, you know, during the lockdowns, Christ, it was brilliant to be living by the sea. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to be in the Midlands. No. Walking up and down a bypass for you know, <laughs> my permitted 2K and 5K. I could walk beside the sea, which was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, I'd be rooting for the seagulls every time. Yeah. Unless they're robbing my chips. But yeah, I just, I was delighted with that photograph. Yeah, you know? no, it's amazing. I didn't lose the run of myself. I didn't decide it. Oh, I'm going to change career here. I was just, I realized it was just luck. But that is often... Yeah. You know, you make your own luck. I decided to stop yeah. and take out the phone and walk slowly exactly. towards the seagulls. Yeah. I got that shot, which I find very satisfying. Yeah, that's great. Great one. Now, this one, it looks like the cover of a book, The Commitments, Roddy Doyle. And it's originally a black and white photograph and it's been hand colorized, or I would say there are, what, four, six, eight, nine 
men and three women. A couple of guitars, sax and a trumpet. And yeah, is this the first? It was the self-published first edition of The Commitments. The photograph was taken in late 1986. And the photographer, a friend of mine, Derek Spears, took the photograph. Yeah, yeah. And all those kids, with the exception of the trumpet player, he was a colleague of mine, John Condon. Right. And I look at that with huge affection because they were great, those kids. Yeah. So the book was published in March 1987. And as I said, the photograph was taken by Derek Spears, who's more well known, I think, for his political photography. You yeah. know, he was always at what became key events. And yeah. he always got these great photographs. He also provided me with the cover for Paddy Clark, which is probably the most famous of the covers of my books with yeah, the, yeah. the kid hanging off the wall. Yeah. The full photograph had another kid with a rolled up Fianna Fáil election poster <laughs> whacking the lad who's on the wall, which right. is why he's laughing. Ah, right. <laughs> you know, so we, when you cut off that half of the photograph, the kid in the photograph had this timeless look about him. The other lad was in tracky bottoms, which wouldn't have suited 1968 when the book is set. Yeah. And also had one of those terraced haircuts, <laughs> whereas the lad hanging off the wall had a kind of timeless type of haircut and a pair of black runners. And right. uh, so it worked it really yeah, well. Yeah. So that was Derek as well, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It wasn't a posed shot at all. It was a shot he took during an election a couple of years before we needed the photograph. Yeah. And you self-published it? Self-published it with another friend, John Sutton, who you know. Yeah. And we, it's our one and only publication and we called the company King Farouk. <laughs> which is Dublin rhyming slang for book. <laughs> so it was that type of attitude, slightly punk attitude about yeah. it all, you know. Yeah. I mean, nickname as a teacher was punk. Right. I mean, I was writing for about four years at this stage and having no joy in terms of getting anything published. So yeah. I decided I'd do a bit of investigating, see how much it would cost to publish a book. But if I had gone into the bank looking for the money to buy a good secondhand car, that's what I spent getting the book published. Right. So you wouldn't dismiss it as a figure, but it was what I wanted and I wasn't interested in a car. So it's, that's what, that's, I, I got the loan. Well able to pay it because I was a full-time teacher at the time, you know. Yeah. So instead of paying back a car loan, I was paying back a book loan. But when I went to get a loan for the book, if I'd wanted a car, they'd have given me the loan there and then. But for the book, I had to <laughs> convince them that they weren't throwing money at me, even though they knew I was well able to pay it back. Yeah. So myself and John did a lot of the, the design, you know, we had to present them with a the business. And it was like a more impressive piece of fiction than the book was. <laughs> <laughs> but we got the loan. Yeah. Uh, it was a real adventure. Very little fiction was published in Ireland. It got lot, a lot more attention than wouldn't be the case now. But they often self-publishing was written off as vanity publishing. Right. Really nasty, snobbish almost term. Mm. So, of course, luckily I didn't know that. <laughs> so I didn't give a shite, you know. <laughs> and it ended up being reviewed in papers. Yeah. So I got a bit of a reputation, really, at the time. And so it, was all, it all started there. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So that's that photograph brings back all of those uh, memories and thoughts. My teaching as well. Yeah. They encapsulate a lot of what I loved about teaching those people. And did the book take off right away? Or? Not really, no. Not in terms of figures and numbers. I sent it then to publishers in the UK in an envelope with the reviews. 
and the press release that we'd issued was, was just a really arrogant thing, you know, <laughs> necessarily, you know, confident, I suppose. But there was one man, Dan Franklin, who worked for a company called Heinemann, and he became my publisher. And my first conversation with him, it's funny when you think in terms, uh, he wrote me a letter saying that he'd phoned me on the public phone that was in the hall of the house <laughs> where I had a bed sit. Yeah. Where was that? On Lawrence's Road. Oh, okay. Clontarf, right. yeah, the top, yeah. the road end of Lawrence's Road, yeah. number 73. Right. So he was going to ring me at half two on a summer afternoon. It would have been a Wednesday afternoon, I think, because I, as a teacher, I had a half day. Right. So I legged at home and sat waiting so I could charge down the stairs and get to the phone before the guy who <laughs> had the flat beside the phone did, my personal secretary. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I got down and I spoke to Dan for the first time, you know, and he became my publisher up until very recently. He just retired recently. But So that was a working relationship and a friendship that went, you know, from 1986 to three years ago. Yeah. And I miss him, you know. But when you know somebody so well and you, one of the great things about Dan is that you sent him a manuscript and you didn't send him, you know, back in the day you didn't email the manuscript, you posted this house brick, you know he'd get back to you really quickly. Yeah. But you do feel a bit bereft, you know. And that's uh, it, he's just gone, like you would still wouldn't send him something to see. I would every time. Yeah. I'd send him something. I've been, I've wrote a book with Kelly Harrington. It's coming out next month. And I just sent it, you know, I sent it to him when I was finished with it, just so I could send it to him. Yeah. And again, as like, I suppose once a publisher, always a publisher, he got back to me a couple of days later saying how much he enjoyed it and what he loved about it. So then obviously the commitments, he's probably most well known for the commitments, I'd say. I don't know. You know I think, no, if you, it depends. If you take, if you're saying in Dublin, what are you best known for? The answer would have to be the snapper. Yeah. The snapper is the one that people seem to love, you know, mm. and the play and the gate, you could have run it for years and people would still be turning up to see it, you know, yeah. and people who weren't born when I wrote it know it off by heart. And it's right. a, a big reason why Kelly got in touch with me about the book, because right. she loves the snapper. Right. You know, yeah, and I wrote that book in 1980, between 1986, late 86 and finished it in 89. And I think Kelly was born in late 1989. So I was finished the book before Kelly Harrington was born. Right. Yet, you know, more than three decades later, she yeah. can recite it off by art in a way that I can't. Right. You know, she's yeah. seen it more times than I ever have. Yeah. <laughs> and that's great. Mm. great. Well, I suppose I meant really internationally, you know, because of the film. Possibly the everything. commitments, possibly internationally yeah. the commitments. Yeah. I'm not, Paddy Clark was a big one as well. Yeah. 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 For, you, you won the Booker Prize. Did you? That. Did. Yeah. Yeah. Like? The night itself, you know, it's hair raising really, you know, it's like, I suppose, it's like being in a horse race you didn't train for. <laughs> but you know, you're not an athlete. I just wrote a novel. Yeah. It was submitted for the prize and the judges decided it was one of the six they liked more than the 120 odd books that they read. So you're in a horse race in a way or you're mm. in some sort of a race, but it's not competitive. Mm. You know, you know yeah. the book had just come out a few months beforehand. So I'd done as much publicity as I wanted to do in that way as well. So I quite enjoy talking about it to journalists and radio presenters. and So I have no problem with that. But, it, you know, you come to a point where you just don't want to hear your voice anymore, you know. So... Well, a writer is kind of a solitary. It's a very solitary occupation. Kind of, so you really yeah. shouldn't be pulling people out of their yeah. workplaces and expecting them to become movie stars. Yeah, entertainers. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's a different, it's a different world. Now, writers aren't like that. Mm. And yet, because in Ireland I'd won this thing, 
there was almost an insistence that you become that celebrity in that way. And it doesn't sit neatly at all. There's a difference between being famous and being a celebrity. And it was just a to stop at the border between the two constantly. Yeah. Now, going right back to the beginning, when I heard my name called out as the winner of the Booker Prize, it's absolutely brilliant. What about the film, The Commitments? Oh, great experience in many ways. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. I mean, it is, it's a strange one when you write a script of any type, whether it's for stage or for screen, and then it goes into production. You're really lucky, you know, mm. really, it's brilliant to see the whole thing beginning to roll. But inevitably, when, you, when I saw the film the first time, it jarred a bit. Yeah. Because the voices didn't tally with the voices I'd been carrying around in my head. The locations weren't exactly as they are in the film. Yeah. Anybody who's seen a film set in Dublin, you know, a Dubliner watching a film set in Dublin where they turn a corner and they're not where they should be. Yeah. It jars, doesn't it? And there's so many people. Why did they go, you know, the snapper? Why did they go that way? to the, That's not the way to the rotunda. And of course, you know... Any loving father would go the straight route. We know the route to the rotunda from where we're sitting at the moment, and that's the route we take. Yeah. Well, what was he doing crossing the river? <laughs> go to the south side, back across to the north side. And when he stops outside the rotunda, that's not the way you go in. <laughs> so you cheat. Yeah. And the reason he crosses the river is to give the impression that he's gone into the city because most 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 cities have a river running through them to give an, a greater sense of a journey, you know. Yeah. So it makes no sense in strict geographical emotional terms, but yeah. it does in, you know, narrative terms. Yeah. So these things jar when you see them. But I remember about 20 minutes into seeing I went to a cast and crew screening of the commitments. I hadn't seen any of it. Yeah. And I sat and watched. And about 20 minutes in, I was able to just sit back and relax. And Alan Parker, the director, told me later that he was looking at me, you know, through the thing. And he began to enjoy himself when he saw me just kind of, I suppose, my shoulders. Yeah. Just allowed them rest in the back of the seat, in the Savoy on a Wednesday after, and Wednesday morning. Right. So that was a great experience. And the... My book, The Van, came out around about the same time. I went into a Jerry Ryan on, was it, I don't know what Radio 2, but what's it called now? Was it then, 1980, 1991? Oh, I don't know. And I sat and I put on the headphones as I am now. And then the first question, Jerry, was, what did you think of the, uh, the world premiere of The Commitments last night in Los Angeles? And I didn't know about it. Right. Yeah, nobody had told me. Africa. It tells you a little bit about the clout of the writer in a film process. Yeah. And, Anyway, being at a world premiere in Los Angeles, I'd be very uncomfortable, you know. Mm. I'd be better off not being there. Yeah. So I didn't know about it. I decided, well, that's funny. <laughs> Do you know? Because it's a bit like you decide you're not going to a party, but then no one asks you. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of takes the wind out of one's sails. But anyway, Alan Parker got in touch about the, the Dublin premiere. And we both said it'd be great if you could you know, make half the tickets available to the public and then the others for the usual, yeah. you know, the media people and the well-known people who go to these things. Yeah. But that opening night was just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It starts with Alan Arkin singing Treat Her Right. You know, it's just a screen with the credits going up and there were people out dancing in the eyes. <laughs> it's an absolutely brilliant rendition. And then once it started, it's such a colourful film and the music is just constant that it was just fantastic really yeah. to be there. It mm. was just a, a brilliant experience, you know. Mm. And I also, I was still teaching at the time. Right. And yeah. what was UCI, I think, the new cin- brand new cinema up in Coolock. Mm. Uh, we organised for a special screening for all the students in Greendale Community School where I thought, who were over the age of 15. Right. So they all saw the film before it was released. Right. So it was great to have that bit of clout again, to be able to 
do that. Yeah. And uh, so that was special as well for me because in a way that area, that whole world I was in, the the wit and the energy of the students went into the book in a way. It's not about them as such, but mm-hmm. that kind of world I was keen on trying to reproduce in many ways and the commitments and the snapper and the van. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a great day as well. I really liked that. And the day after, three lads who I used to teach came in to my classroom and I said, I really enjoyed the film, a great film, Mr. Doyle. I said, thanks very much. And they hesitated and one of them said, will you write a song for our band? <laughs> and for a split second, I was tempted to say, yeah, because they were under the impression I'd written all that music. <laughs> I wrote Mustang Sally. <laughs> you know, with all those songs, I yeah. wrote them. Yeah. And it, it was very hard for me to, to explain to them, that actually, no, I didn't write those songs. <laughs> and, and to go down in their estimation, having got up as yeah. far as any teacher could possibly get, yeah. to go right, 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 right back down again <laughs> in the space of about 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds, it sounds like... What happens when you're kids anyway? Yeah, yeah. Inevitably, yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. And uh, it's now a musical. It's a, they actually, they, the musical ran for two and a half years in the West End and then it toured. And the tour was supposed to start again in 2020, but of course, pandemic and then 2021. But actually, the first show was next Monday right. in Bromley in Kent. So it's a... You know, when you look, when I look at the photograph that was taken in 1986 and I'm going over to see the musical in 2022, it's brilliant, really. Which brings us to the next photograph, which is also yeah. commitments. Yeah. But this one is a f- colour photograph of a London theatre, kind of Victorian, I would say, very ornate front of the building with giant red commitments going across the entrance and a, a crane lifting in a giant bass drum, red with a white drum skin with silhouettes of obviously the commitments and your name across it, Ronnie mm. Doyle's. And the guys are just craning it in over the top of the word there. Yeah. The commitments. So there's a world, that's the Palace Theatre in the West End, the London Cambridge Circus. You can see the yeah, can see design, yeah. WC2. And underneath it, near the, one of the doors, you can see world premiere performances from the 21st of September. So that was a few weeks before the 21st of September. And the I went over for three months. I had written the script for the musical. This was 2013. And I went over for the from the very beginning. And the last month or so, they moved into the theatre. That was very early on a Sunday morning because about the only time of the week where you could do that type of work without causing traffic chaos in, in you know, the centre of London. Yeah. In two days, that'll be nine years ago, the 21st of September. We're sitting yeah, here yeah. on the 19th of September. Yeah. Yeah. And I was up at six this morning. It was dark. So I think I was out of my flat that I was staying in in, in London to get there. And then with the producer and the director and other people to watch the uh, the drum being taken off the truck and slowly la- and carefully put on the at the top of the canopy there so that then the drum became Roddy Doyle's The Commitments. Yeah. And it was great to watch. <laughs> and as you can see, it was a lovely day. Yeah. Lovely, lovely day. Yeah. Uh, having seen the rehearsals, you know, there were just the people sitting around for the first day, just people sitting around in chairs, reading out their parts. And then gradually you see it becoming, and then moving into the theater, they, I can't remember what show had been there beforehand, but they took down the set and there's a lot of hammering and a lot of noise and a lot of coming and going. 
But anyway, the mice, <laughs> unbelievable. It used to be theatres had their cats, but for health and safety reasons, you can't have a cat anymore, you know. Oh, so yeah. I'd go to the loo. I'd literally go to the jacks and I'd give the door a good bang, open it up, and the mice would be bouncing off the wall. Bouncing off the wall. Very, and then they're gone. And you wonder, where are they? Yeah. There's no obvious places they could be. So I'd quickly go to the jacks. <laughs> do the needful. Wash my hands. I was way ahead of my time. And I'd come out and I knew that if I went back in 30 seconds later, the place would be full of mice. <laughs> and they were all over the place. But then gradually, I suppose, they were eventually they were gone and they again settles into its life and the set is there for two and a half years. Yeah. So the mice aren't being disturbed anymore. Right. But there was one night, I think, when a mouse ran across the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it was just, a, it was an amazing experience. Musicals would never have been my first love, you know. Mm. So I had to immerse myself in them. And I remember going across to London to watch four musicals in two days. Yeah. There was one based on Rod Stewart songs. Right. Some of the Rod, some Rod Stewart songs are incredible, but, you know, you're still dreading <laughs> turning the page and coming across, do you think I'm sexy? <laughs> You know, dreading it, you know. I actually fell at home. I fell on the stairs one. You know, I was coming down. I had a cup of coffee in one hand and a bad musical script in the other hand. So I wasn't gripping the stairs. I fell and fractured my uh, rib right. and tore the muscle. Yeah. So it was really painful. Yeah. And I still blame that musical. <laughs> I was traumatized reading the thing, thinking, what am I doing here, you know. But I went to four musicals in a row and I went to Blood Brothers, which I didn't like at all. Yeah. And then I went to Chicago, which surprised me a bit because I didn't like it either. And that right. was day one. Yeah. I was thinking, this isn't great. But then I went to Jersey Boys. Yeah. I thought it was amazing. And it was very inspiring as well from my writing point of view, because that simple drum beat that of the Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons mm -hmm. was relentless. And the music just was relentless right through the thing. And it wasn't just an excuse for a story and threading the songs together. There was a great story running through it as well. Mm -hmm. So that was good. So I felt I'm in love with musicals again. And then the last one I went to was uh, Billy Elliot. And I wasn't expecting much, to be honest. I liked the film, mm. but I thought with Elton John doing the music, it might be a bit corny. It might be a bit crummy. Because again, Elton John had brilliant stuff and then, you know, stuff that leaves me cold. Mm. But it was an extraordinary show. Absolutely brilliant. Rhythm music was incredible. Yeah. And so those two... That was like having your battery charged and thinking, well, that's in a yeah. way, that's what I aspire to. Yeah. So it was a long and engrossing job. And it was like, you know, I'm a novelist primarily. I work on my own. An editor eventually will have his or her say and my agent. She'd have advice or observations. Mm -hmm. But you go into then this world where at any one day there could be, you know, 10 or 11 people, important <laughs> things to say. <laughs> Opinions that you must listen to, you know. Okay. And I'm always up for that, you know. Yeah. So it's a strange world for a writer to go into. It's the West End of London. Yeah. Whereas normally I'm in the attic of my house yeah. working, you know. So it was brilliant, a really great experience. So that photograph just, and I was standing beside Phil McIntyre, the producer, when the thing came down, but the two of us absolutely delighted. Yeah. Yeah. And what was it like then the first night or second night when you were? I went to all the previews, you know, which for some people is the opening night, you know. It was a Saturday. I'd been to Stamford Bridge to see Chelsea play Fulham, the opening game of the season, the football season. And I had to leave at half time to get to the first preview. I right. think it was the first one anyway. We had a scooter. Joey the Lips, the character, the trumpet player, yeah. comes on stage in a scooter. Yeah. 
and he came off the scooter oh. and the scooter very slowly moved across the stage and he managed to lean out and grab the handlebar <laughs> with the wheel still spinning. Oh, and people thought it was part of the show. People thought it was absolutely hilarious. And people at the front thought this was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. If he hadn't grabbed the handlebars, one or two of them would have been decapitated by the spinning wheel, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. So that was a bit hair raising and a lot of thought. I think a lot of thought had to go into how are we going to manage this? We have to be very careful about it for obvious reasons. The music is great, you know, River Deep, Mountain High. And a Try a Little Tenderness, which is a big part of the film, mm. isn't in the musical. But then at the end, it is. Right. And it was it, it, the rendition of it is just brilliant. So it, it became a big part of the show. So at the end of it, people are going, you know, send them home sweating. Yeah, people yeah. are going home very happy. And, yeah. you know, but then the, the, I can't remember how many previews there were a lot, you know, and it was mm-hmm. a meeting after every show and then back in the following day. And I'd often my working day started at the flat I was in in Earl's Court doing the rewriting and emailing it off to the director. Is this, does this fit the bill? And going in again and again and again. So by the time the opening night came, the real opening night, family and friends were up. My parents didn't travel, unfortunately. At that stage, they thought it was too far for them. But and my father went into hospital then later in the year So and died the following March. Yeah. But at the same time, they were very aware it was on and it was great excitement about it all, you know. So it was a great, that was a great night because I knew the show inside out at this stage. Yeah. And I was able to watch it and not really care. Mm. Do you know, I was sitting with my family and seeing through their eyes as well. Yeah, I'd look left and right now and again to see faces glowing or whatever, or just, yeah. you know, hearing the laughter and not really worrying about what was going on. When you're involved in the live production, sometimes people wouldn't be aware of the fact that somebody's missed a line or somebody said what in fact is somebody else's line. <laughs> <laughs> That happens now and again, because they they know the thing so well. (laughs) Or like, where is somebody, you know, that uh, hasn't appeared, you know, you just hope it flows, you know. And I don't remember being any moments like that on the opening night. Yeah. And it's opening again, is that what you said? Yeah, it's touring about 10 months and including, I think in February, it'll be a week in the Olympia. The posters are outside the Olympia already. And a week in the Opera House in Cork, which would be great because mm-hmm. it hasn't been there before. And a week in Belfast in the Opera House in Belfast. Lovely. And I'll be yeah. looking forward to both of those. But one of my favourite shows was the one in the last time I went to see it in Belfast because the audience was absolutely brilliant, yeah. really brilliant. Yeah. And to hear people with Belfast accents trying to say the lines with a Dublin accent <laughs> sitting behind you, you know, because they've enjoyed it. They're enjoying it, you know. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's great. So, yeah, I, and I'll go to another few shows in the UK. It'll be all over Scotland and England and then the three weeks in Ireland yeah. for about 10 months, I think. Brilliant. Yeah. This photograph is of, I counted them, there's 45 children in this photograph. Is that all? I'm not being facetious <laughs> because if memory serves me, there were 54 in the class. So Right. I can't, well, unless I counted wrong, but... Kind of 45. Uh, It's a really good photograph because every one of them has their eyes opened Mm -hmm. and you can see every face clearly apart from one kind of messer at the back. But nobody's pulling face. Everybody's just smiling to the camera. It's really well set up uh, photograph. And I was looking at it. The photographer must have used a telephoto type lens because all the faces are about the same size. 
where I've used a wide angle lens, the ones at the front would be big and the ones at the back small. So that's compressed the whole thing. It's probably, whoever the photographer was, probably just day-to-day stuff, but it's actually, it's very well set up and all the children are very well behaved. I was trying to spot you and I looked and I couldn't figure out which one you were. In the top right-hand corner. The kid with the glasses. The Buddy Holly lookalike. In the well, I, didn't, I wouldn't have known who Buddy Holly was. And I doubt, I've never seen Buddy Holly wearing a school cap. <laughs> so what's the school? was Skull Assam, St. Assam's in Rohini, the national school, the boys' national school in Rohini. Right. And that's our confirmation. Ah, right, right. We didn't wear uniforms usually. Yeah. But... Most had, if not all, I'm not sure, had the uniforms for their for our confirmations. Yeah. And that would have been either just before, I'm assuming afterwards, because we have the rosettes there. Most, virtually everybody has the rosettes. Yeah. So that's, I'm looking to see who isn't there. It's very hard. You know, that would have been possibly 1969, 1970. I left primary school in 71. Yeah. So we were probably in fourth or fifth class. Yeah. I can't remember exactly when you made the confirmation. But uh, yeah, that was, it looks as if it's outside the school hall. That's the Porrick Heffernan there you're pointing at from Kilbarrick. Uh, yep, him. Yeah. I couldn't name them all without a bit of help, but sure, I could sure. name yeah. quite a few of them. Fair play. I mean, when you look at the size of the class, and I think, mm. you know, there must have been some guys missing that day. You'd wonder how the teachers managed. I know. You know, because when I started teaching myself then in a secondary school in um, 1979, one or two of the classes, the 36 or 37, and they were big. There were too many in the room, you know. And in the 80s, then the teachers went on strike, a series of two day and three day strikes to improve the standards in the schools. And one of them was bringing down class size to 30. So, you know, it's not far off twice the normal class size yeah, there yeah. you're looking at. Yeah. And yeah, our classes were always around 30. Yeah. But the quality, the standard of the education, looking back and it was really good. Was it a good school? I thought so, yeah. And I was back in it some a few years ago, not very long ago, before the pandemic, but I was invited to go back to be interviewed by a class. They were doing some sort of project. And when I went in, I felt great. You know, I felt happy to be there. Nothing bad was coming down the stairs or, you know, <laughs> you know, nothing at all. No bad memories. And that photograph, I think it was that photograph was up on the wall. Right. Yeah. Right. All these years later. And there's a junior part of it as well for the infants. School in the same kind of, I suppose you call it a campus now. There's a boys school and a girls school and then for the little kids mixed. Mm. And I went into that one as well on a different day. And that was lovely because, I, you know, that was when the teachers were women and they were all very nice, if I remember right. And then you go to this world where the men are in charge. And actually, they were grand too. Or at least if I was lucky, perhaps, and that mm. the teachers I had were great. There was a man who had us for two years, Mr. Kennedy, Noel Kennedy. He was a terrific teacher, a terrific teacher. And when I, we had creative writing, he got us to write stuff and he encouraged me. I will never forget it because... You know, I went to the Christian Brothers then and encouragement wasn't something that was um, <laughs> encouraged <laughs> in that environment. Whereas Mr. Kennedy was very, I remember being very nice. But we had this amazing teacher called Leo Swan. And Leo Swan had a life outside the school and that he was an archaeologist. And he 
brought in these things, aerial photographs of me showing us ring forts. And he, I think he kind of helped develop that notion of how much you could tell from the air. And it's mm-hmm. kind of standard stuff now with drones or mm-hmm. whatever. But he was a, you know, he was a pilot. Mm-hmm. And yet he was a primary school teacher. He had this extraordinary life. He was involved in the Wood Key protests as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And he brought this personality and knowledge of the world into the class. And he had this projector that I think he built himself as well. And a desk that was an array of things like lava from Vesuvius. And years and years later, I was talking to a man at a wedding and he was talking about this incredible teacher who'd been his teacher in Tala. Yeah. And I said, was his name Leo Swan? <laughs> and this man was significantly younger than me as well. Yeah. He said, how did you know? Yeah. And yet I knew when he was talking about him that we had both been taught by the same man. I'm looking at it now and there's one guy, definitely Hugh Buckley, a friend of mine, isn't there? Hugh's a jazz musician. And if you look at a full photograph, I don't think Hugh was in that day. Just looking. No, I don't see him there. So that's yeah. one to add definitely to the figures. Yeah. See the little crutch. If you look across, oh, it, yeah. that was Dominic Dixon, I think his name was, and he had polio. Right. And the speed of that, I call him a man now because I'm hoping he's alive and well. Yeah. I haven't seen him since, but the speed of that guy on those crutches, <laughs> unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. And he was so sound. He was a very funny guy. You can tell by the face, really, yeah. he was a very funny guy. <laughs> but, you know, when you think, it, you know, there was a guy with polio in the class, like it's almost... You think it's the 19th century or something, but yeah, of course yeah. it was. I think it's coming back. It's making a. <sighs> well, yeah. I think, yeah. This is a photograph. It doesn't look like Dublin, but it's a, I'd say a city centre anyway of a fairly affluent city centre. They've redone the road. So you've got these kind of reds, brick cobblestones on one side, on the other kind of more paler grey grey and red ones and then there's a path kind of in the middle of paving slabs and a, a giant bronze looks like of Desperate Dan the guy from the dandy, the dandy wasn't it? Yeah I took that I'd say it's probably about 10 years ago I'm not sure it doesn't aspire to art I was just a, I was just keen on remembering it yeah. that's Dundee in Scotland right it's the town square and you've got the dog behind, oh yeah, you know, and there's one of Minnie the Minx, a smaller one of Minnie the Minx, another character, Sparky. And I was there for a couple of days because I was being given an honorary degree by Dundee University, right? which is why I was in the town square, because the conferring was in the town hall. I'm not sure if that's the name, which is further to the, if I remember right, further to the right there of the photograph. So I turned the corner from the hotel I was staying in, walked up. The hotel was down near the river or the sea. And it's not a very prosperous town, I would have thought. The university is a big part of it. So there's right. a great, there's a great energy to the, you know, youth in the place. But, and I liked the town. Uh, it was cold. <laughs> well, Scotland. <laughs> you know, you, you tend to forget that there are places further north than Dublin, yeah. you know. Yeah. But it was a, a one of the conferring itself was terrific, really enjoyable. And but I turned when I saw Desperate Dan, I just thought, well, one, you know, it's, I hadn't been anticipating seeing Desperate Dan, <laughs> but 
it took me back because actually what in my early years in school I was I really liked school but I wasn't learning how to read and it was my mother taught me how to read using comics so I just felt well there's so was my mother you know yeah but it was desperate Dan in a way and my mother who helped me how to read and it's worked out well when you think about yeah. it given yeah. what I do for a living so I was hoping there wasn't at the time a museum like I was really taken aback that there wasn't there's some archive but they haven't mm-hmm. actually built it I, they may have by now but if anything was crying out for a proper museum mm. it's this world of comics yeah that this world that brought such happiness and to my in my eyes literacy but such happiness and glee i remember looking forward to the comic every week you know mm. you'd be swapping the comics and the, you know the bash street kids and yeah. desperate dan and dennis the menace they had a life yeah like before we'd see them on telly, we didn't see them on telly. No. We just kind of had that page once a week. And they were as, they were as real to us as heroes are these days yeah, to people yeah. or comic characters or much loved children's characters that people, that children and yeah. their parents and guardians watch on telly. Yeah, I, so, I ordered in the, the local shop and you'd go up on the yeah, Friday. Friday. They'd pull up all the comics that they had set by and mm. they'd be leafing through to find mm. your name. Exactly. You know? Yeah, with the there you go. Doyle you go. in the top corner, yeah. written with the handwriting of the, yeah. The maze, uh, that economy gone completely, of course. Yeah, now. yeah. But that piles and piles of comics and magazines and newspapers that were put aside, yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's, that's why I took that photograph. And that's why I, I chose it as one of mine as well, because I, I suppose there's the photograph of my father and then... It's probably not the most flattering thing to say, but the, the statue of Desperate Dan <laughs> reminds me of my mother. <laughs> because she used Desperate Dan to teach me how to read. Right. <laughs> and I've got this great memory of sitting at the kitchen table with my mother yeah. and with my finger under the words. And she's telling me the words slowly. And then I remember one day I saw that I'd seen that word before and I knew what the word was. Right. And I was able to. And then. It all took off quite quickly. Yeah. But she got me over the hump using comics. There you go. So that's why that photograph has stayed in my phone. Right. Yeah. Brilliant. That's brilliant. It's a great thing to have. Isn't that a brilliant thing to have in the yeah. middle of the city? Yeah. I suppose that's it's brilliant. Dundee's version of Phil Lynott. Yeah. Or Luke Kelly. Yeah. I think we're probably better off with Phil Lynott <laughs> and Luke Kelly. I think music probably, yeah. when it comes, you know... But it is a brilliant thing to have. That's great, Roddy. Grand. Thanks Thank a million you. for doing this. I enjoyed really that, yeah, it. yeah. Talking shite That's on Monday good. morning. <laughs> Thanks a Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Well, that was brilliant, wasn't it? I hope you enjoyed, Roddy. That was my third podcast, so I'm starting to relax a bit and get used to the sound of my own voice. If you'd like to hear any more, please subscribe to Six Photographs on your podcast app of choice. And if you'd like to leave us five-star rating, I'm told it all helps to push the podcast out there into the podosphere. Now, I wonder who will be number four. Bye. <laughs>